Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Sir Walter's favorite book. The beauty of this episode's intro is that there is no scene to set. <laughs> the material we are discussing is the first chapter of Persuasion, in which we are introduced to Sir Walter and his favorite book, Debrett's Peerage. So we're just going to dive in. This is a really dense kind of intro paragraph or two. We're going to kind of try and break it up into pieces, but here, here's how the book starts. Sir Walter Elliot of Kellynch Hall in Somersetshire was a man who, for his own amusement, never took up any book but the baronetage. There he found occupation for an idle hour and consolation in a distressed one. There his faculties were roused into admiration and respect by contemplating the limited remnant of the earliest patents. There any unwelcome sensations arising from domestic affairs changed naturally into pity and contempt as he turned over the almost endless creations of the last century. And there, if every other leaf were powerless, he could read his own history with an interest which never failed. This was the page at which the favorite volume always opened. It's well read, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> Just pull it off the shelf and boom, there's Kellen Hall. <laughs> Just flops right open. Austin never really tells us exactly what the book is, but it's pretty clear that she is referring to Debrett's Peerage. So tell us a little bit more about that, Diane. According to Debrett's website, they have been publishing these books on the peerage and baronetage since 1769. There were other peerage listings that were published around this era, but none that really had this kind of standardized use in society the way that Debrett's did. And that original 1769 book was actually called The New Peerage and was published in three volumes by John Alman. John Debrett, so two Johns, different last names, John Debrett actually entered into a partnership with Alman. And after Alman retired in 1781, Debrett took over the business and continued to publish these various editions covering the aristocracy. Some of this publication history is coming from a great 1993 article by Eileen Sutherland called The Rise and Fall of the House of Elliot, just perfect title, that really breaks down this whole passage in Persuasion. Sutherland also posits that the specific volume that Sir Walter would have had is the first edition of The Baronetage of England with a list of extinct baronets, published in 1800. Although we have also seen the 1808 edition argued as likely by other sources, so it's definitely up for debate. And it has actually remained in print ever since it started, with the 150th edition published in 2019. And so you can actually still go and find these books. Like on Google on Google Books, you can actually find these historical um, accounts of Debrett's Peerage, if you're kind of interested in that niche nerdery, but that's what we're here for. But what we do know, again, is that Debrett's contained information about, and this is, this is kind of a quote from Debrett's website, Debrett's contains information about the royal family, the peerage, privy councillors, Scottish lords of session, baronets, and chiefs of names and clans in Scotland. So it's covering this really, really wide spectrum of gentry and peers, but it's also split into two volumes. The first volume is generally dedicated to the peerage, uh, people who have those inherited titles. And then there's an entirely different volume specifically for baronesses. And that is why Austin describes Sir Walter's favorite book as the baronetage rather than describing it as the peerage. He's he's only interested in the book that's about him. So this is where we're going to come back to the original text and kind of read the entry that's in this mythical version <laughs> of the baronetage. So here we go. Elliot of Kellynch Hall, Sir Walter, born March 1st, 1760, married July 15, 1784, 
Elizabeth, daughter of James Stevenson Esquire of South Park, in the county of Gloucester, by which lady, who died 1800, he has issue Elizabeth, born June 1st, 1785, Anne, born August 9, 1787, a stillborn son, November 5, 1789, Mary, born November 20, 1791. That's the entry that we get specifically from, from, from this piece. So Austin then continues on. Precisely such had the paragraph originally stood from the printer's hands, but Sir Walter had improved it by adding, for the information of himself and his family, these words after the date of Mary's birth. Mary, December 16th, 1810, Charles, son and heir of Charles Musgrove, Esquire of Uppercross in the county of Somerset, and by inserting most accurately the day of the month on which he had lost his wife. Also love that she made Charles and Mary's wedding anniversary her birthday. That's fun. <laughs> Cheeky Austin, we see you. Yep. <laughs> Um, and then here's kind of the last kind of portion of the text that we want to be explicating today. Then followed the history and rise of the ancient and respectable family in the usual terms, how it had been first settled in Cheshire, now mentioned in Dugdale, serving the office of high sheriff, representing a borough in three successive parliaments, exertions of loyalty and dignity of baronet in the first year of Charles II, with all the Marys and Elizabeths they had married, forming altogether two handsome duodecimo pages and concluding with the arms and motto, Principal Seat, Kellynch Hall in the County of Somerset, and Sir Walter's handwriting again in this finale, heir presumptive, William Walter Elliot Esquire, great-grandson of the second Sir Walter. Now, one of the things I love about that is, I think it's like a kind of common thing to joke about how in Jane Austen novels, like everybody has the same name, like everybody's named John or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And even in this section, she's like, yeah, and they all married a Mary, a Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth. <laughs> They're all just Marys and Elizabeths. Yeah, he just lump them all in together. It's true. And then we see, obviously, with William Walter Elliot, Sir Walter, Sir William, like it's just, we're just going to keep using all those same names. It's not confusing at all. So this is a really fun passage to explicate. I mean, if you're cool like us, <laughs> because you have to be patient as well as pull out all the specific phrases and materials that provide greater context. And side note, it's also fun to get actual birth dates for characters. So Anne Elliot's birthday was actually just a couple of weeks ago. Happy birthday, <laughs> Anne. So in the passage that happens right after what we just finished reading, Austin tells us that vanity is the beginning and end of Sir Walter's character. And that is kind of like the key that unlocks this whole passage, really. He's not only proud of his stellar good looks as a 50-year-old, I think he's pretty much like Paul Rudd, you know, and has perennial youth. Paul Rudd is aging backwards. He is Benjamin <laughs> buttoning all of us. It is just, I can't. Oh, it's a bit of a mind warp to get over. But uh, yeah, <laughs> not only is he like really proud of how good looking he is, but he's also extremely proud of his status as a baronet. He's obsessed with his own consequence and the title. But what's funny about this is that in the grand scheme of England's peerage and gentry, a baronessy is actually like the lowest ranked hereditary title that can be passed on to a male heir. So it's like very low in that pecking order. So just to quickly cover this, hereditary titles go in ascending order, baronet, which is what Sir Walter is, baron, Viscount, Earl, Marquis, and then Duke. There are, of course, companion female titles, but those are almost always, there are some rare exceptions, but those are almost always not inherited in their own right, but they are bestowed through marriage. It's an extremely patriarchal jam we've got going on here with these titles. And someone like Sir William from Pride and Prejudice has been knighted, so he is also addressed as Sir, but his knighthood is not a hereditary title that he can pass on to his son. So both knights and baronets get to be addressed as Sir, and baronets can pass their title on, but they are not lords, nor are they members of the peerage. It's a little confusing because there are so many layers and levels here. But Sir Walter wouldn't have that hereditary seat in the House of Lords, for example. 
And depending on who you ask, baronets might be considered part of the broader aristocracy, just in a lesser role, but that isn't a term that is strictly defined the way that peerage is. Legally, Sir Walter would be considered a commoner and that he wouldn't have the privilege of peerage. For example, at this time, if you were a peer and you committed a crime, you would be tried by other peers, literally a jury of your peers, as opposed to a jury of commoners. And that was not the only privilege of peerage, but I think that's the one that seems to come up the most in historical fiction and that people who are listening to this may be somewhat familiar with. But that would only apply to barons and above. So Sir Walter, he is not eligible for those privileges. And like Zan said, even though this information might seem sort of unimportant, it's actually really key to understanding more about Sir Walter's character, the way he sees his own importance, and obviously the way that he really aspires to be at like a Lady Dalrymple (laughs) level. So we know that the baronetcy is one that Sir Walter is going to be passing down the line of primogeniture, but it's again, it's it's not the fancy title that it seems like at the beginning of this novel. And I feel like somewhere right now there's a there's a baronet in England who's listening to this, and we have just <laughs> totally insulted them. It is a very fancy title. It's not it's certainly fancier than any title that Zan and I will ever Correct. have. Correct. So so let's get into this like the backstory of like baronetcies in general. So the rank of baronet was first created by King James the first in 1611. And it's actually a title that was created to make money for the king and to fund wars. So it's something that you actually had to purchase. You had to purchase the rank of baronet. It's like buying your star on the Hollywood walk exactly, of fame. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so this is something that like you buy it and it's meant to kind of like, you know, King James was even actually like kind of pressuring people to buy these because he wanted their money. <laughs> so if you were a wealthy family, that was how you got a baronetcy. And Sir Walter's family gained the title, and we know this because of the passage, it says that he gained, his family gained the title in the first year of Charles II. So when Charles II came to the throne in the mid-1600s, he created 159 new baronets. And this is kind of for similar reasons. He's wanting to create money for the crown, because it's a really tumultuous period. You know, we've got Cromwell running around like a cheeky rascal. So even though Sir Walter is incredibly proud of his family history, its rank and title were actually achieved by purchase, which is just oh, so beautifully ironic because he's such a spendthrift. And that's what we're confronted with, like, right out of the gate, too. He's like, oh, this this title that we've purchased was so amazing. And then his family is bankrupt, essentially. <laughs> Sir Walter is also very proud that his family takes up, quote, two handsome duodecimo pages. <laughs> and this would be one twelfth the size of the original printed paper. So, you know, if you're folding things into a signature and approximately seven by four and a half inches. It's something that supposedly means his family title is very established. So it's not a new title, like, (laughs) ew, gross. They're taking up some serious real estate in this book, you know? Two whole pages into Brett's, (laughs) my friends. Like, look it up. (laughs) Another thing that I think is kind of fun about this this baronetcy and this account in the baronetage is that there's a possible sideswipe happening here on Austin's part at the title since the family clearly has Irish connections and possibly Scottish ones as well. So we know, you know, the name Walter, Sir Walter, that's a very Scottish name. And we know that the Dalrymples are from Ireland. It's an Irish title. And titles from these countries are considered inferior to English titles, which is, again, hugely delightful because later on in the book, Sir Walter will very eagerly kiss Lady Dalrymple's toes in this novel, even though it is an Irish title. He would cheerfully let her run into him with her carriage, you know? That's right. That's right. As long as she's acknowledging him on the street, he's okay with whatever she wants to do. So this next section, just a little bit of a trigger warning for child loss. The quoted passage from Debrett specifically lists the daughters, Elizabeth, Anne, and Mary, but it also lists a stillborn son. And the purpose of this mention of a son, it's a heartbreaking detail to read in this kind of dry data entry. 
but it is, I think, intentionally meant to point out the importance of primogeniture here. It obviously depicts a really real loss for the Elliot family, but it also signals that there is no male issue to carry on this particular branch of the Elliot family legacy, which I think to a modern audience just seems like, why would we care about that? Like, this is the loss of a child. For this type of family and in this time, you know, that whole concept of an heir, it's a really big deal, both in terms of carrying on your family legacy, but also, you know, for financial reasons, for keeping property in the family, yeah. supporting spinster sisters, right. all, all of that. Yeah. Like, there, there's some real, like, kind of economics tied up in all of this. Yeah, and it's and it's also a way of, you know, the fact that Austin includes it, it's a very, it's such a small detail, but it's so very nuanced, right? It's an ent- entry that also seems to signal that the peerage and the landed gentry in England are no longer really as strong and powerful a presence in England. I really don't mean to tokenize the loss of this child, but this novel does seem to be one in which Austen is overtly criticizing the landed gentry and handed down titles. So the loss of a family heir here in this moment seems to signal kind of a diminishing of that institution. So a, a really heartbreaking detail, but has a lot of nuance attached to it. And is very much the reason why we see that entry from Sir Walter, where he says, you know, heir presumptive, because he never had an heir apparent, but Mr. Elliot is is his heir presumptive. And that's a direct result of, you know, the loss of this child. Well, and he also, Sir Walter also makes some really interesting additions to this account. He's like, okay, this is what the breath says, but then he's like, I've got some additional things that I want to say. And it's, and it, it is about his family, right? Um, and so he's considering these, these, I love that Austin says he considers these as improving on the original. And the things that he writes are, again, revealing in terms of what Sir Walter thinks is important. Yeah, we can see that he has taken the time to make note of Mary's marriage, which even though she hasn't managed to marry into the aristocracy, she has at least landed herself the oldest son and heir to some future property. So that seems like the type of thing that Sir Walter would consider worthy of inclusion in his favorite book. That concern with male primogeniture, who inherits, and how property will be passed on. It's very, very key to understanding a lot of the dynamics in a lot of a lot of Austin's work. Yeah. So again, when Sir Walter is specifically writing about the heir presumptive, William Walter Elliot, the heir presumptive means Mr. Elliot is the most likely heir at this point in time, because it's not like Sir Walter is still married and still having children. But he might still be displaced if the current Sir Walter has a male heir in his lifetime. Like, that's still very much a distinct possibility. Yeah, he's, he's still only in his 50s. So yeah, very much so a real possibility. Now we're going to take a moment to really appreciate a few additional references to Debrett's in the novel, particularly Elizabeth's opinions about the book. And this is actually something we discussed in last week's episode on Spinster, so give that a listen. But Elizabeth is 29 and acutely aware of the fact that having an eligible suitor come calling would not be a bad thing. <laughs> the time is right, you know, as Austin says, because, quote, then might she again take up the book of books with as much enjoyment as in her early youth, but now she liked it not, always to be presented with the date of her own birth and see no marriage follow but that <laughs> of a youngest sister made the book an evil, and more than once, when her father had left it open on the table near her, had she closed it with averted eyes and pushed it away. <laughs> Such a good detail. I love also, like, the book of books. Yes. It's, like, very religious, you know? <laughs> it is, right? It's not the family Bible. It's Debrett's people. That's what we care about. It is the book of books. <laughs> and then the passage continues. She had had a disappointment, moreover, which that book, and especially the history of her own family, must ever present the remembrance of. 
the heir presumptive, the very William Walter Elliot Esquire, whose rights had been so generously supported by her father, had disappointed her. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she does not like looking at Debrett's right now because it's reminding her that she's not married, that Mr. Elliot is, you know, going to inherit, and she's got she's angry about this. She's upset. One of the reasons she's really frustrated and upset with this reference to Mr. Elliot is that she and her father had really tried to pursue a match between these two um, because it would keep Kellynch and the title in the family. She's So she would essentially like not have to change her role at all. She'd go from Miss Elliot, who's kind of ruling over Kellynch Hall, to, to Lady Elliot and just kind of stay where she's at. But Mr. Elliot ditches Elizabeth's efforts and marries somebody else. And he marries for money with his first marriage. And so <laughs> she's a little bit ticked off about this. But it's funny, too, because at the beginning of the novel, we also know that his first wife has died. And she's like wearing crepe in mourning for her. But she's also like aware that he's back on the market. <laughs> but this is why this is why when we get to Bath, finally, at the near the near the end of the novel, Mr. Elliot and Elizabeth are actually like besties when when Anne finally arrives. And that's because both Mr. Elliot and Elizabeth are very deeply invested in making sure that the Debrett's entry still reads the way that they want. They want to keep that in the family. So he wants to make sure that he's not just heir presumptive. He wants to be in a position of power that ensures he's going to inherit the title. Yeah, it's really more about making sure that he is kind of cozying up to the family so that Sir Walter doesn't marry somebody else and, you know, start cranking out babies. Mm -hmm. And presumably some of those babies would be boys. He does not want to be disinherited. That is the number one priority here. You know, he's cultivating a relationship with the family. Yeah. And I think... And she perceives it as a courtship. Yes, exactly. And that's the important part. And we see enough of his character to know that he, there's no false modesty on his oh, part. Sure. He's like, oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Elizabeth, <laughs> she's into me. <laughs> And meanwhile, Elizabeth, she's just trying to keep her life in the status quo. You know, she does not want this disruption. She, I don't think, would be happy if her father remarried. But although it seems like, it seems like that has never even really occurred to her. She's like oblivious to that as an option. Yeah. You know, marriage to Mr. Elliot would, of course, be very flattering to her vanity. It's, you know, keeping her in the sphere in which she has been raised. She would just go from Miss Elliot to, well, someday she'd be Lady Elliot. Obviously, she would first go from Miss Elliot to Mrs. Elliot. And then after her father passes, then she would be Lady Elliot. You know, really just keeping it all in the family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just want to keep this awesome Debrett's entry rolling. <laughs> we got to dream big. That's right. Well, and that's why it's so funny that she like is oblivious to Mrs. Clay's presence as a threat to that. Because Anne sees it, Mr. Elliot sees it, but she is oblivious. And like, even when Anne tries to give her clues, she's like, what are you talking about? She's got freckles and like a weak wrist. We're not, he's not interested in her. <laughs> she's like Emma being like, Frank and Jane Fairfax? Right. What? Yeah, like like intentionally blind to the fact that Mrs. Clay could be scheming here. And she is. Mrs. Clay is a wily one, basically. It's so obvious. Oh my gosh, yeah. She's got some real Isabella Thorpe energy, oh, yeah. except for, you know, like, a, like with more skill. skill. Yes. She is definitely trying to find her way into this family. She's definitely cozying up to Elizabeth as a way to get closer to Sir Walter. And it's kind of funny when Anne and Wentworth get together we see that there's actually a big rupture of Mr. Elliot's plans and Mrs. Clay kind of falls into that. So I'm going to read a passage here. So the news of his cousin Anne's engagement burst on Mr. Elliot most unexpectedly. It deranged his best plan of domestic happiness, his best hope of keeping Sir Walter single by the watchfulness which a son-in-law's rights would have given. So he's like, ah, I was going to marry Anne and then I was going to really like have a stranglehold on this. But though discomfited and disappointed, he could still do something on his in, for his own interest and his own enjoyment. He soon quitted Bath, 
and on Mrs. Clay's quitting it soon afterwards, and being next heard as established under his protection in London, it was evident how double a game he had been playing, and how determined he was to save himself from being cut out by one artful woman at least. So he's like, oh, you, you think... You think you've won, but no, I'm going to take Mrs. Clay to London and kind of establish her as my mistress. And I've, I've won. <laughs> I think, you know, Mrs. Clay, she's probably going to get the last laugh, right? Yes. As Austin continues on, Mrs. Clay's affection had overpowered her interest and she had sacrificed for the young man's sake, the possibility of scheming longer for Sir Walter. So basically Austin doesn't leave it ambiguous. She's like, oh yeah, that was her game. She was trying to become Lady Elliot. But because Austin says her affections have overpowered her interest, she decides to go to London for Mr. Elliot. I don't know. What is so great about this guy? <laughs> I don't know. But as Austin continues on, she has abilities, however, as well as affections. I love that. She doesn't just have affection for him. She has abilities, people. Skills. Okay? Admire these skills, people. <laughs> she has abilities, however, as well as affections. And it is now a doubtful point whether his cunning or hers may finally carry the day. Whether, after preventing her from being the wife of Sir Walter, he may not be wheedled and caressed at last into making her the wife of Sir William. <laughs> so she's like, listen, I'll be your mistress, but you are going to wife me up eventually. Like, it's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, Mrs. Clay, she's gonna she's gonna get her money. I mean, honestly, get yours. You gotta take care of yourself. That's right. Honestly, the only part in the book where I'm like, oh, really, Miss Clay, is when she decides to go to London to be his mistress. I was like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Like, come on, you this is your chance. Lock down that Sir Walter, like right now. <laughs> I do love that in this passage too, that this is something that Austin leaves open-ended. Um, so she's like, you know, we don't know whether after preventing, you know, it's still to be determined, kind of thing. But you know, the fact that she embeds that thought, I'm pretty sure Mrs. Clay's going to lock that down. Go get it, Mrs. Clay. And that's a better option anyway, because assuming that Sir Walter doesn't remarry and have an heir, Mr. Elliot will not only eventually inherit the title and the estate, but he's already rich because of his first wife. And, you know, as we know, like Sir Walter doesn't have any cash. Yeah, that's so right. she's playing a long game here. Yeah. So, you know, it's working out for her. I think what's really interesting about the way that this passage with Mrs. Clay and Mr. Elliot kind of stays open-ended. I think it brings it back to this idea of Debrett's and the fact that there is no kind of final closure on who's going to be the next entry in Debrett's. It's very open-ended. And I think Austin has, she's made it very clear throughout the novel. She has very little patience for Sir Walter. And she clearly has more respect for the naval officers like Admiral Croft. And she actually physically places Admiral Croft in Kellynch Hall, you know, really kind of replacing the aristocracy. Because, you know, Austin, she's she's really not pulling any punches. She's kind of fed up with the aristocracy. She thinks they're kind of out of date, out of touch. And it's the rising middle class, like the naval officers, that have a lot more going for them. And so when when she kind of ends it on that note of ambiguity, I think that's for a purpose. And, and it is that that open-ended question of what's the next entry in Debrett's peerage. So so now let's kind of look at, at Debrett's and these kind of lists of the peerage in a little kind of broader context for a few seconds. So there was actually another famous listing of the peerage, and that was called Burke's Peerage. But that wasn't published until 1826. But that one actually got really popular as well. And so the original title was Burke's General and Heraldic Dictionary of the Peerage and Baronetage of the United Kingdom. Very stately. Love these long titles, right? And so this was a series of family histories, and it was published nearly every year from 1839 to 1940. Um, so it really became like the more popular. It it kind of outstripped Debrett's in terms of popularity around these this era. 
But what's funny about this um, is that Burke's Peerage is no longer published, whereas De Brett's still going. And what's funny about that is that Burke's Peerage apparently played really fast and loose with historical accuracy at some points, where they would actually start like publishing family anecdotes as fact within their accounts. Just making everybody seem way more interesting than they actually were. Right? Yeah, it, it, became, a, it became a really fascinating read, but, you know, the editor was not so concerned with accuracy. <laughs> so um, the comparison as far as like what was the difference between Debrett's and Burke's was that Debrett's printed a comparatively short history of the family with each title holder, like we saw with this entry from from Sir Walter, which is a very accurate rep- replication of a Debrett's entry, whereas the Burke's entries really dug deeply into family histories, sometimes, you know, imaginary family <laughs> histories. You know, so Burke's was a lot more narrative driven, perhaps. And so they were still kind of conser- considered kind of like really good companion pieces with each other for a long time. Yeah, you'll actually see references to Debrett's and Burke's popping up in historical fiction, particularly in historical romance. <laughs> there might be a comedic element, for example, where a heroine's mama is using these as almost a reference guide for finding eligible bachelors. Mm-hmm. Like it's basically a future son-in-law catalog. Yes. She's like, um, let me just look at these Regency LinkedIn profiles <laughs> on the family. A little bit of Regency Tinder. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that seems, that seems accurate, right? I mean... It- <laughs> I've also seen it come up quite frequently in historical mysteries as a plot point for kind of figuring out who is a suspect or who ultimately is the murderer because, you know, the amateur sleuth or the detective or whoever will end up using Debrett's or Burke's as a way of making a connection that nobody else realized. And they're like, oh, that's why they did have a motive after all because of, you know, their great, 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 whatever, you know, so... There is another reference that I found that I thought was kind of fun. In Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, Sebastian tells Charles that he's really, really lucky. Like, you're lucky I'd introduce you to my family the first time that they go to Brideshead together. And he says, you don't know what you've been saved. There are a lot of us. Look it up into Brett's. You know, just kind of like, <laughs> you don't know how how tedious it would have been to meet all my family. You know, just, just look it up into Brett's instead. And I think that's delightful. Pages upon pages upon pages. Our entry is, you've never seen an entry so long. <laughs> Way more than two duodecimo pages. <laughs> yes. All of this also reminds me of Gilmore Girls, another recurring podcast theme. I feel like that's becoming. And specifically Emily Gilmore and her focus on associating with the right families and her obsession with the DAR and all of that. Yeah, she's very obsessed with family history and how that links up to the quality of the people that you're trying to talk to. So yeah, she buys into this, right? For sure. (laughs) Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this overview into Sir Walter's favorite book. And remember that you can actually look these up on Google Books. I think it's fascinating to read some of these entries, you know. And, and you know, if you're, if you're bored, you can look up Burke's Peerage for some crazy shenanigans. It's like a, like Victorian drunk history. Yes. Is what it sounds Ooh, I like. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for next episode, where we'll be talking about the Rushworths' divorce with our first guest, Dr. Ellen Campbell. We're very excited. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye! Bye.